Lord Jesus, we thank you for your coming. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us, that you guide us, that you don't leave us or forsake us. You counsel us with your eye upon us. And today, that's what we come needing, expecting, hoping for. We need to hear your voice calling to us, giving us direction, bringing clarity to our confusion. God, I pray that uh, today, as the word goes forth, people, people would know, they would know that they know that they know that they are being addressed by God and not just by a man, that they would know that in the, de- in the deep parts of their heart, the Spirit of God is leading them, speaking to them, confirming your word, and that we would all leave here today seeking your face, listening to your voice, and extending your love to the people around us. Pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. I'm gonna be reading from John chapter 12, verses one to eight. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. So here we are, we're in the third week of Advent. And Advent is all about the absence of Jesus. The word Advent means coming, but Advent begins with Jesus' absence. It's not Jesus has already come, that's Emmanuel, God with us Christmas. It's Jesus is coming and we are waiting for him and we need him now. Advent is a season of unfulfilled promises, but the, the fact that they're unfulfilled doesn't mean that they're not still promises. So it's a, it's a season of tension and we have to set our mind on the promises of God so that the unfulfilled part of them doesn't overwhelm us while we wait. Have any of you ever had that experience of just feeling overwhelmed by the absence of something that was a promise? Like, you're on a road trip going to someplace in about hour nine. It, you, you're just convinced that the destination doesn't exist anymore. You're, just, you're on the perpetual road to nowhere. The wheel in the sky keeps on turning. I mean, whatever. Yeah, Advent is like that. Advent is like that because Jesus has said, I will come to you. I will not leave you orphans. But he's not here, and we have to live with that absence. And when you live with the absence of Jesus... If you're like me, you find yourself really hoping and longing for the things that will be true when Christ is with us. And for me, one of those things absolutely is the peace of the church. For those of you who have been in the church for longer than about five minutes, at some point you have either observed or been part of division or conflict or confusion or misunderstanding or just outright hostility in the church. It's 
incredibly uncomfortable. Almost nothing else can destabilize our faith as quickly as running into conflict in the church, in the body of Christ, where we think the body is supposed to be harmonious and unified, and we're supposed to be loving one another. And like Jesus says, this is how you'll know my, that the world will know that you're my disciples, by your love, that you love one another. And it's really, really difficult to watch people that you love fight with one another. In some ways, that's even more difficult than when you're one of the combatants. And that's what this story is about. This story, is, this story from John 12 is about conflict, division, hostility in the church, and how Christ responds to it. And when I look ahead and I think about this text, what I see basically is the, like the logic of Romans 12.1 at work, where Paul, when he gets to Romans 12, he looks at his audience and says, this is your reasonable act of worship, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, so that everything that you do as a human being in, in your physical body, in the church, that is your act of worship to Christ. Now that sounds all well and good, but then what happens when while you're trying to do that, over your shoulder you hear a voice saying, why this waste? And you turn around, and it's not some pundit on cable news, but it's an apostle. What do you do then? That's John 12. So what we're gonna do today is we're just gonna walk through this text from the perspective of the three main characters. We've got Mary, we've got Judas, and we've got Jesus. And we're gonna see how the tension builds until it finally resolves with the word of Christ to the church, bringing clarity into tension and drama and confusion. So first, put yourself in Mary's shoes. If you've been walking with us for the last few months, you remember that what just happened in John 11 was that Jesus showed up in Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. Dead, in his tomb. Dead, never coming back. Dead, starting to stink. But Jesus shows up and says, Lazarus, come forth. And out of the tomb comes Lazarus, walking in his grave clothes. And Mary is Lazarus' sister. Mary has literally received her brother Lazarus back by resurrection from the dead. Now, it's very, very likely that Lazarus was Mary's only living male relative. There's no mention of other family beyond Mary, Martha, Lazarus. So when, when Mary has received Lazarus back from the dead, she hasn't like just received her brother, though she has. She's probably also received her only sense of security and provision and stability in this life. And so when she goes into this feast, this big party that they've made for Jesus in Bethany, and she and Martha are throwing, uh, really, I mean, the, the greatest Christmas party I can think of or the greatest Advent party I can think of. And she can look out into the dining room and she can see Jesus sitting here and her brother Lazarus sitting there. She's overwhelmed by the gratitude. She's overwhelmed by what God has done for her. So she attempts to respond appropriately because what is the appropriate level of response to somebody who has given you your brother back from the dead? Like literally back from the dead. She grabs the super expensive bottle of perfume, about a year's, valued at about a year's wages. I mean, just to think of your paycheck or the paycheck you wish you had, and then think what kind of, what kind of perfume you could get for that. She runs into the, into the dining room where everybody's eating. She pours the perfume out, not just like on Jesus' body, but specifically on his feet, the gross parts. And she starts to wipe the, t the perfume up with her hair. There is literally no level of service to which Mary would not go to express her gratitude for what Jesus has done for her. 
And that's where the story hits your life and mine. I mean, if you wonder what worship is all about, this is a fantastic narrative picture of it. When we actually have to go back and think, what has Christ done for me? What has Christ done for us as a people? Then the next question is, what is the appropriate response given what Christ has done for me and what Christ has done for all of us? Just think through the book of John for a minute. I mean, John chapter one, where does Jesus begin working for us? In creation, why do you exist? Why do I exist? Why do we enjoy any good thing at all? It's because he created us by the power of his word and he upholds us at every moment. Now, okay, why is it a good thing to exist instead of just a few moments of ups and downs before we cease to be and like dissipate into some sort of ethereal vapor? It's because he's given us the power to be born again to eternal life so that the same eternal nature, the same eternal joy that God is and the same love that God is by nature forever existing, we can become and we can enjoy it forever so that life isn't just up and down and then an end. John 6, by the power of God, he's given us He's quickened in us the faith that gives us access into the family of God. If it were not for him seeking us and making us able to join into his life, we never would. John 15, our power for living right now comes from being grafted into the vine so that we can love him and truly love each other and so have eternal life and bear fruit for him forever. The the meaning of our life comes from his power in us and through us and with us now. John 20, Jesus looks at us and says, receive the Holy Spirit and breathes on all of us and we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, giving us power for a godly life. And it, the Holy Spirit literally is, like Paul says, the down payment of our inheritance in the world to come. Anytime that we enjoy the work of the Holy Spirit in us right now, what we are literally experiencing is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. It's like, it's like if Jesus had said, your inheritance is going to be $50 million. It's held in, in escrow until a certain time, but here in the meantime is five to get you through until you get the other 45. That's the experience of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to us, like narrated in John 20. Okay, so given all of that, just a few of the things that God has done for us, a few of the things that God in Christ has done for us, what sort of worship should we give him? What sort of lives should you and I live? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything we do becomes an act of reasonable service to the God who has done all of this and more for us in Christ. Singing is part of it. That is a thing that we do in the body. But so is giving a coat to a man who's just been released after 20 years of incarceration. So is feeding a family of five who can't put food on the table at Thanksgiving. All of that is our reasonable act of worship. So is maintaining peace in the body, living in harmony with one another. That is not just trying to make ourselves and our neighbors comfortable until the sweet by and by. That is our reasonable service of worship. So take a moment, examine yourself. Think about it honestly. Is your worship the worship of your daily life, day in and day out, commensurate with what God in Christ has done for you? This is the test that I give myself, and certainly that I gave myself this week after reading this, this bit of John 12 again and again and again and again. Would somebody look at me and think that the worship that I gave to Christ was an unreasonably immoderate, extravagant 
offering? Would somebody who didn't know Jesus, or maybe even somebody like Judas who did and had even seen Lazarus rise from the dead, still look at me in my life and say, Devin's just a little over the top here. I submit to you that unless somebody could say that to you, you may not have gone far enough in your worship. Call it a growth opportunity. Until you've gone far, it's not far enough. And since I've just mentioned some of the ways that we, together and individually, have been serving folks in and beyond the community, just ask yourself, I mean, on a Sunday morning, would you show up early to make coffee for the body of Jesus, to care for the feet of the body of Jesus who show up bleary-eyed and exhausted after being up all night with the kids? Would you stand at the door and smile and welcome people to the church? Would you look after the children of the body, the ones that the apostles look at and say, keep those folks away from Jesus, but Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me. Would you make yourself available to be a mentor of an adolescent who's trying to take their faith seriously but is really kind of struggling with it? Would you show up on a Wednesday night to pray, to pray, to do nothing else other than to seek God and to ask him for what you believe we should be asking him? Would you give a ride would just pick somebody up in your car on a Sunday morning to let somebody who wants to worship with the family of faith but can't get here for one reason or another get here to enjoy the fellowship that comes from being a part of the body of Christ? Would you lead a Bible study or a small group? Would you give your money so that no part of the body would be rich while another part would be in need? Be eager for good works because those are the sorts of works that are, the only sorts of works that are commensurate with worshiping a God who has done what Christ has done for us. I would encourage you, go check out the surf kiosk in the atrium. All right, let's bounce back to the text for a second. We know how this story ends. I just read the whole thing. This is a really common text to preach from. Everybody who's heard this story knows where it's going, but just Try to get back to that second naivete with me. Pretend that you don't know. Put yourself back in Mary's shoes. You've just run into the dining room overwhelmed with gratitude. You've just dumped probably the most expensive thing in the house on Jesus' feet. You're, you're wiping it up with your hair. The smell of it is filling the whole house. You have done the most incredibly grateful, extravagant thing that you could think to do, and probably even then you don't feel like it's enough because out of the corner of your eye you can still see your brother raised from the dead. And then suddenly behind you, you hear, why this waste? How do you feel right then? Especially when you realize that it's an apostle behind you. Why this waste? Somebody who's been walking around with Jesus for years, knows Jesus better than you do, probably has a better read on what Jesus thinks and values than you do, and over your shoulder you hear, why this waste? Does your heart sink a little bit? Your mouth gum up and you think, "Uh uh-oh. Wouldn't Judas know better than me? Shouldn't Judas know better than me? I'm willing to bet that a lot of us have been there. I know I have. I mean, for me, for me, it was like this uh, earlier in my life when I was pursuing my education. Some of you know I was a professor before I was a pastor. And I remember being ready to go and do a PhD in biblical studies. And I was so excited to spend all my time going deep in the word of God and like trying to really, really learn what the Bible said so that it could be used to build up the people of God. And I remember having an impromptu, unplanned conversation with one of the greatest pastors I've ever known who had pastored my church for years and years and years and years. And when he heard what I was doing, 
he looked at me and he said, why are you doing that? Why don't you go be a pastor? Why this waste? How did I feel in that moment? I'm not the only one who's been there. You've been there too. But this is the scary thing. If you're Mary and if you're me, you don't really know. Judas is coming at Mary with a principle in mind. Judas knows what that perfume was worth. Judas is the financially savvy one among the apostles. And on top of that, Judas kind of sounds like he has a point. Because if you've read the Gospels from left to right, one of the things that you know for sure is that Jesus cares a lot about the poor. And Jesus is always looking at his disciples and telling them to do things for the poor, to like liquidate what they have in order to give it for the poor. And if you study the church from the first century onward, you see that care for the poor has always been a part of it. It's just, you, you, discipleship without care for the poor is not a thing. So when you get to a, a great preacher and bishop in the church like John Chrysostom, like he's looking at his congregation in the most rich and powerful city in the Roman world, and he's saying to them things like, if you have two cloaks and your brother doesn't have one, your second cloak belongs to your brother. And he's saying things like, okay, if it's the end of the year. The harvest is taken in. You're gathering up surplus. Let me tell you where there's storage for it. In the stomachs of the poor people that you passed on the way to church this morning. That's the ethos of like, Jesus' movement, is care for the poor. And so when Mary is sitting there and she hears the words of Judas, she's got to think, oh shoot, I did hear a sermon like that once. Oh man, did I actually just engage in not just colossal waste, but in trying to honor Jesus, did I actually violate the very thing that Jesus stands for? That is a possibility, and it's a scary one for all of us too. And this is the risk that we take when we try to live lives of extravagant worship. When we try to live lives of extravagant worship, we risk actual immoderation. We risk actual error. We risk going so hard that we overstep. We're like an athlete who's giving the very, very best that we have to such an extent that maybe we commit a flagrant foul, and it's not intentional, but it's still a foul. Maybe that's where Mary is. But here's the thing. We know, because we're reading this text, because we, we have access to what Mary doesn't have access to, we know that, G, that Judas is saying these things for a reason, and it's because he's a thief. He's not saying these things because he's really concerned for the poor. He's saying these things because he likes to steal from the money bag, and he knows that if there's an extra, you know, 365 denarii or whatever, do the conversion into, into today's world, a whole year's wages worth of money in the money bag that he and Jesus are carrying around, there's a whole lot more there for him to get sticky-fingered with. But put yourself now in Judas's shoes. Like, actually think what he's thinking. Can you imagine seeing this woman, like, burst through the double doors, charge your teacher, and start, like, dumping perfume on him? And if your sin is like mine, when you have thoughts like, why this waste? What is this woman doing? You're not thinking to yourself first, well, I'm a thief, so I'm really hoping that somebody is just going to keep donating to Jesus' money bag so that I can take some out. No, 
Judas is the guy who stuck with Jesus all this time. Judas is the guy who like stuck with Jesus even at the point when Jesus was saying crazy stuff like I am the bread of life. You have to actually eat my body and drink my blood if you wanna be my disciple. And then all the crowds leave. Now, where did the money for the money bag come from? It came from the crowds. So when all the crowds leave and the money looks like it's gonna dry up and Judas stays anyways, like there's something about Judas that has kept him with Jesus all of this time. And there's this tension, there's this fight in Judas between actually following Jesus, even when Jesus is saying incredible things, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, like helping yourself to the money that people give to Jesus. I, I find that really an empathetic place to be. I've never known anybody who sinned or like fell in ministry or even who just, sell, uh, just sinned and fell in the pew, who was just so wholly given over to doing evil that they couldn't rationalize for themselves what they were doing. Like if I were Judas, I would say to myself something like, nobody's as good as actually finding and ministering to the poor in the community the way that I am. I'm the most qualified of the apostles to do this. So what if I take a percentage off the top? That's a finder's fee. Something like that. Judas is scary to me because we see this same dynamic playing out in churches throughout all times and in all places and in all human hearts. It's really tempting to read this passage and put Judas in the black hat and Mary in the white hat, right? But at some degree, all of us are going to be Mary at some point, and all of us are probably also going to be Judas at some point. But this is what's happening in the church is Judas is the one who unites Jesus' authentic teaching, care for the poor, with his own sinful appetites, and finds a way to so marry them together that from the outside, unless you're Jesus, you probably can't tell the difference. And that is terrifying, and that is super common. This is why we today are living in an age of abuse in the church. Now, abuse isn't the word that Jesus used in his time. Abuse is sort of a word that comes from our own therapeutic culture, but it's a fair term to use for what's going on. Think about the sex abuse crises, plural, that the church has endured and is enduring right now. I mean, as we've grown more and more and more and more aware of the horror and just the incredible scope of the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. I read an account recently from one survivor uh, of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. This, This is a man who grew up in Boston. And he said that for him, the really horrifying thing, for him and for the survivors that he knew, was that all of them had been abused in Catholic ways. And this is what he meant. Like after he would be coerced into sexual activity with a priest, that same priest who had just abused him would put him in the car and take him to a priest, another priest, who was a friend of the abusing priest and would have that other priest receive both of their confessions and pronounce them reconciled to God. Now, do I think there's a place for repentance and absolution of sin in the church? Absolutely. Is that an appropriate exercise of the truth that every Christian, when they sin, can come to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, and be covered by his blood. No, that priest has unified his own sinful fleshly appetite with the true teaching of Christ and used it to manipulate 
and assault and abuse the vulnerable people in his church. But this isn't just Catholics. This isn't just Catholics. If you're paying attention to the news these days, you know that for those of us who believe that the Holy Spirit continues to do signs and wonders and miracles in the church today, this is every bit as much a problem for them. Because what the, if you're reading the reports I am, you're reading stories about people, powerful leaders, many of them men, actually all of them that I've read about men, looking at women in their congregation and saying, God says that my wife is gonna die and that you're gonna be the next wife. So we can start doing some sexual things now. And then afterward, looking at that woman and saying, now let's pray Psalm 51 together. Let's repent together. Again, is there grace for repentance? Yes. Is that an appropriate use of the grace of repentance in the hands of a powerful person? No. And for those of us who identify even more with like sort of the down-the-line, garden-variety, evangelical movement, think about what's happened with the Southern Baptist Convention. Think about what's happened with the Southern Baptist Convention that was receiving reports for years and years and years and years from people who were claiming to be survivors of sexual abuse and them saying, I'm sorry, because of our doctrine of the autonomy of the local church, we cannot and we will not maintain any sort of central record about accused abusers, even those who have, some of, in some cases, have been like found guilty in civilian courts. Can you mount a strong theological defense for the doctrine of the autonomy of the local church? Yes. Is that an appropriate use of that doctrine? No. So for any of you in the room who find yourselves in a position where somebody is manipulating you to do something and they're giving you what seem like biblical or theological reasons for it, but something in you says, I don't know, like, I mean, I see the theological logic here, but I really wonder, what is this person getting out of this? Go and talk to somebody you, you trust. Start with a small group leader or a pastor or an elder and make sure because this, this dynamic of spiritual abuse is really going on in the church today. That Judas thing is really happening. Jesus cares for the poor. Jesus wants the church to give to the poor. And at the same time, his disciples, who are also called to share their love and concern and goods with the poor, are sometimes light-fingered with the money bag. Jesus isn't surprised by that. Let's none of us be surprised by it either. Now, I also don't want to give you the impression that you have to be an apostle or a pastor for this sort of dynamic to affect you and your heart. This is the thought experiment that I've done for myself this week, and again, that I would encourage all of you to try. Think through your relationship with the church, whatever your church is, what, however you define the church, whether it's your very small group of believers in your, in your small group, whether it's High Point Church, whether it's a local church somewhere else, whether it's a denomination, whether it's like the church in all times, at all places, spread across the globe. Think about how you feel about that church. Now, look in your heart for the places where you have to deal with really strong negative emotion about the church, if there are any. Then, see if there's a reason for it. Sometimes we just feel bad about stuff, but a lot of times there's a reason for it. And if you're like me, a lot of times we feel kind of yucky about other expressions of the church around us because we have a biblical or a theological reason for it, or so we think, right? And now there may actually be a strong biblical or theological critique 
that you could, that you could leverage to say, if it, were your, if it were like appropriate for you to do it, to look at your brother and say, I am really concerned about this in you. Sometimes that's the way to go. But before you do that, before you go like, I'm gonna leave my gift at the altar and go make peace with my brother, or Matthew 18, somebody has sinned against me and I'm gonna go to them. Before you do that, make sure that your critique, that your concern, that your accusation against the people around you doesn't actually also kind of like line up and unify with some sinful or fleshly tendency in you. Make sure if you're going to critique somebody for having insufficient doctrine that you are not succumbing to the sin of pride. For example, make sure This is a big one for folks like me who stand up and hold a microphone and talk about these things, but make sure that if you're going to encourage people to give more, that your eye is not on your bank account at the same time because of greed. Make sure, ask yourself, run through that big list of deadly sins. Make sure that what worries you about your brother or your sister is not just an excuse for you to do what Judas did and unify Jesus' teaching with your sinful tendencies. Again, take a step back with me now into this story. Put yourself where Judas is standing. Mary has done something really radical. Probably without even knowing what you're saying, you just blurted out, why this waste? Now you're a little bit worried that you might get caught. But at the same time, you also know that everything that you actually said out loud could be explained charitably, could make good theological sense. But one way or another, a year's worth of income has just been dropped on Jesus' feet. There's more people in the room besides Mary and Judas and Jesus. How do you feel right now if you're Lazarus? How do you feel right now if you're Martha? How do you feel right now if you're one of the other guests who's just watching this whole thing happen? I mean, have you ever like just been in conversation when suddenly you realize that two people close to you are starting to have a fight? Like, you know, shoving each other? How, how awkward is that? I mean, unless you're one of the rare people who just confidently and assertively knows how to interpose yourself and de-escalate a situation, like, it's really, really awkward to watch two people starting to fight because you're confused. You're not really sure who's fighting about what. But if you're starting to get the picture here in the room, you're like, uh-oh, Mary just did something radical. Judas is calling her on it. Who's right? How do you know? Because this is the position that most of us find ourselves in most of the time. This is the position that you and I are in right now as Christians on this side of Christ's return, on this side of Christ's second coming. We are looking out at the church of God in our like, most immediate context and in the broadest context that you could imagine, and we see division and argument and fighting and conflict. <sighs> And frankly, those fights are so big most of the time that even if we tried to jump into the middle, like we couldn't scream over the noise. Are you going to be able to scream over the noise of the divisions between Catholics and Protestants or between Catholics and Protestants on the one hand and the Eastern Orthodox Church on the other hand? I mean, could we even really unify all of the evangelical and believers Baptist churches in a city like Madison if we shouted loud enough? Like, this is the position that we find ourselves in, is waiting for Jesus to say something, waiting for Jesus to reassert what's true, reworking, waiting for Jesus to come and work to reunify his body, and in the meantime, seeing these conflicts, because 
From the outside, we don't know that Judas is a thief. We just know he said something that sounds kind of plausible that would make what Mary did that looked otherwise like a really nice action seem kind of ignorant and unimpressive. So this is our first clue about what's going on. For all of us, we should look and we should say, hang on a second, Jesus allows Mary to wash his feet. Jesus lets her do it. Jesus doesn't say no, not now, that's inappropriate. Jesus lets her do it. Jesus knows what we do not know. This is one of the amazing things about Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. He knows that he is going up to Jerusalem, that he's about to be killed. He knows who's going to kill him. He's not even surprised that it's Judas. That's why he says that anointing his feet is an act of preparing him for burial. And, I mean, think about this. Way back at the calling of the disciples, Jesus tells Nathanael who he was and what kind of a person Nathanael is before Nathanael gets within 100 yards of Jesus. He knows. Later in the gospel, when the crowds are really starting to love Jesus, John tells us that Jesus wasn't entrusting himself to any of them because he knew what was in a person. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what sort of a person Judas really is. He's not wondering whether Judas is a thief. He knows. He knows that Judas is the one who's about to betray him in like a few verses. And that's important to bear in mind because when you look at Jesus from the outside in this story, you could almost feel like he's stuck in a double bind. Is Mary going to, or is he going to protect Mary from Judas, right? Is he going to look down on this vulnerable poor woman and say, hang on a second, Judas, you're out of line? Or potentially, is he going to say, Mary, nice try, but you didn't worship me in spirit and in truth? If you didn't know the end of the story, both of those seem like plausible answers. On the one hand, then, he could be condemning himself by not sticking up for his own teaching. Jesus speaks then. He opens his mouth for the first time in the story, and he lets everybody know what's actually going on here. And he stands up for Mary and reaffirms the rightness of her worship. Permit it. Permit it, he says. And so this really is the first point that I take away from Jesus' actions in John 12. It gives me tremendous spiritual hope, especially at a time when I'm looking around at the church and I see these abusive dynamics at play. All around the world right now, Jesus is at work confronting abuse in the church, confronting the misuse of his teaching in his name in the church. When I look at the news and I see report after report after report after report about sin in the pulpit and sin in the boardroom, and I see the pain that it brings to like vulnerable people in the congregation. There's two ways to, for me to feel about those reports. On the one hand, this is the way that I think a lot of people would like us to respond to those reports. Would be to say, the failure, the public moral failure of leaders in the church verifies the inauthenticity of the church. It shows us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the church can't really be the body of Christ. That maybe we could be like Gandhi and we could say, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. That's one way to read it. 
And if you're in the church already and you keep seeing these stories, you might be thinking to yourself, this looks like a good opportunity to deconvert. Because if following the teachings of Jesus really leads us to a place where you can be like that person and give your life to following him and give your life to leading his people, and what you end up doing is abusing those people, then maybe there's like some poison in the pudding. That's one way to read spiritual abuse in the church. But this is the way that I read it, and I read it through John 12, which is to say that Jesus will speak up. And every time I see somebody called to account for their sins, especially leaders in the church called publicly and held to account for their sin, what I hear is Jesus sticking up for the weak, for the poor, for the person in the pew who just is doing their very, very best, doesn't have that much theological education. I hear Jesus reasserting the truth and standing up against the dynamics of abuse. Those headlines are not signs that the church has failed. Those headlines are signs that Jesus loves the church and will purify her and is purifying her by his word. If you and I love the church, because this, this is the danger here. This is the danger that's the flip side of hope. If I'm hoping in Jesus' word and trusting that he will actually step up and protect and support and encourage the people in the church who are being hurt and misused and abused, I could easily give way to despair. Or I could easily give way to willful ignorance. And this is my word to all of us today in this room. Do not look away from abuse when you see it. Jesus doesn't look away either. Jesus is in the room, in the worship service where the abuse is happening. He's watching the whole thing happen. He's both receiving the worship and seeing Judas start to, start to criticize it. And it's in the context of the worship service where Jesus speaks. So we cannot just say, oh, we, there's nothing we can do. We've just got to gut this one out. No, we have to actually actively hope in Jesus. It's his word that comes and prunes his disciples and makes them fruitful. We can hope in Jesus because we know he's going to act to reaffirm and support the, the folks like Mary, the folks who are actually living lives of immoderately appropriate worship in response to what Jesus has done for them. Those are the ones that Jesus speaks up for. And those are the ones that we can now. So think about this. Every time you also see somebody in the church taking the side of somebody who's been abused, especially by spiritual leaders, when they're doing it in a godly way, that is also the work of Jesus in the church. The example of those people who's willing to come alongside the hurt and the downtrodden and the oppressed, that is the heart and the work of Christ in the church today. But the thing that maybe amazes me the most about what Jesus says in John 12, because he doesn't say a lot, the fact that amazes me is that he doesn't even say as much as John the narrator says. Like John the narrator of John 12 kind of breaks the fourth wall of the text and says, by the way, all of you reading this, Judas was a thief. Like he's not saying this because he's telling you the truth. He's saying this because he's a thief. Now you might expect that then Jesus would look at Judas and say, I know the secrets of your heart. I know that you're critiquing Mary because you are a thief and because you wish that she would have sold that perfume so that you could have helped yourself to... I don't know, whatever the tax man takes. But he doesn't. Why on earth does he restrain himself like that? Why doesn't he just rhetorically choke slam Judas right there in the worship service in front of everybody? Let everybody see Judas, unmask him for who he really is. Bring him low. That way nobody would ever dare to treat Mary that way again. 
Why is Jesus not that assertive? My explanation, my explanation is that at the end of the day, Jesus even loves Judas. And that we should not, any of us, despise the kindness of God that leaves an opportunity for repentance up until the very end. I think back to the book of Ezekiel that we were preaching through in 2021 and into 2022 when I got here. And one of the most powerful sermons from that series was when Nick was preaching. He was, he was preaching about the dangers, the spiritual dangers of delighting in somebody else's downfall. And God looking at you and saying, no, no. Because God is the God who brings judgment and God is the God who brings justice. But in the meantime, while we wait for God to bring judgment and justice, we have to behold his mercy. Behold both the kindness and the severity of God. And you see the kindness of Jesus on display in this text, even toward Judas. And that should be fantastic news for you and for me, because remember, even if we are striving to live like Mary's and live lives of immoderately appropriate worship, we are going to be suspect to the temptation to take what we know to be true from Jesus and to find those places where it overlaps with our sin and use our sin then in the church to enrich ourselves. So the kindness that Jesus shows to Judas here by not exposing him and calling him on the carpet is incredibly good news for the sinner in the pulpit. It's awesome news for all of you in the pew. Now, I keep saying hope in Jesus, hope in Jesus. How do you do it? I mean, how do you do it really? At the end of the day, what we are waiting for is we are waiting to hear Jesus speak. This is his coming to us that we so desperately need that he will accomplish in perfection when he comes back to receive the kingdom for his own and unite all of us into one holy, true, and apostolic church with no more of these silly divisions and infighting. But in the meantime, how do we wait? Because if I was right about what I said about the Holy Spirit earlier, about how the Holy Spirit is like the down payment of our inheritance that will be ours in the kingdom of heaven one day, then we should also expect that Jesus is going to speak to us now. And that every time we hear his voice now, we are also experiencing him coming as the Prince of Peace to the church now, on this side of his return. I love Psalm 119, verse 114. The psalmist says, You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Hope in Jesus' word right now. Look for him first in the scriptures. What Jesus says to the church today in and through scripture is every bit as much as true and as powerfully the word of Christ as what came out of his mouth in Bethany at that dinner party. He will bring clarity and truth into the confused worship service, into the confusion of the church, the divided church that's fighting over the best way to worship him. He will speak in his word. Second, listen. Listen in prayer. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And yet, that does also refer to Scripture. But it's a normal part of the Christian life to come to Jesus in prayer and to know that you are being guided and directed and led in one direction or another. So I would encourage you, take time not just to speak in prayer, but also to listen. Sit with your mouth shut sometimes and your ears open with your pen or your laptop ready to hand and know that you can expect to hear his voice, not because you are good at hearing, but because he promises that his sheep hear his voice. And finally, I would say, 
Another way to listen to Jesus right now, practically, is to do what all of you have done this morning, which is come to church. In what context does Jesus address Mary and Judas? In the context of the worship service gone wrong. Don't despair about affiliating together with the church just because you can see that things have gone very badly wrong over here in one way or another, because it's not possible that both Mary and Judas are right. That is the nature of the Christian worship service, is to show up looking to Jesus, seeing that there are people saying things about Jesus and doing things to Jesus that cannot be compatible. But you have to show up anyway, because that's where Jesus is, and that is the context in which he will speak and bring clarity. So if you wonder, if you wonder, what is the right way to live my life before God? Or if you wonder, look, I see all these teachers, they're not saying the same thing. What should I do? Do not despair, keep worshiping and keep listening because that is the context where he brings clarity to confusion. We sang it this morning, O come all ye faithful. Now, Advent is the feast about Christ's coming but it's also the feast in which we gather together, all the faithful, and we come to him. Don't stop coming to Jesus. So in conclusion, what should you do? First, think over your life. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Make a list. Do, do as, as, as inane as it sounds, do the brainstorming activity. Remind yourself of everything that Jesus has done for you. Write it out. Praise him for those things and then commit yourself to order your life in the Romans 12.1 sense of everything I do must be worship that's sufficient for what he has done for me. You will fall short, inevitably, because everything we could give back to him is nothing compared to what he has given us. Do it anyway. Second thing, Make war against the sin in your life so that you do not find yourself ever in Judas's position. Do not tolerate sin in your life. By the power of the Spirit in you, this is Romans 8, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Walk according to the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Otherwise, the more you grow in knowledge, what you're going to find is that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge will make you proud. Knowledge will put you in the position that Judas was to know more about Jesus than Mary did and so to make his knowledge an opportunity for his furthering his sin. Finally, if you find yourself not believing because the church seems messed up, I'm speaking especially now to those of you in the room who are not Christians, who would say you're maybe just exploring this thing, trying to figure it out. When I put myself in your shoes, I say that one of the greatest evidences that I would have to think that Christianity cannot be true, that, that Jesus cannot be who he, who he and the church say that he is, the greatest evidence I can think of would be corruption in the church, would be something like spiritual abuse, would be ongoing sin in the lives of Christians. I want to challenge you. Believe in the Jesus that the Bible presents not in the Jesus that you abstract from observing the church. The Jesus that the Bible presents is the one who sees the same corrupt dynamics that you see, and he acts to confront them. He will do it, inevitably. Maybe not in the time that you and I would have preferred, maybe not right in the middle of the worship service does he call Judas on the carpet, but he will do it. You can, you can put your trust in that Jesus and know that from the very beginning, even during Jesus' earthly ministry, that was the dynamic of worship that the church was grappling with. What you are seeing now is nothing new, and it is not evidence disproving the trustworthiness of Jesus. The church is comprised today 
in this room, across this city, across the nation, around the world, future time, past time of both Judas and Mary. And most of us at one point have been one or the other, if not both at the same time. And it's because of that that I look to heaven and I say, like, with everything in me, even so, come Lord Jesus. Bring a clarity to your church. Speak now, but also come. Put it all to right. Amen.